Oh, church, we have the best news in the world. And we have the best God. So amazing. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 5. And um, as you do, I just want to remind you that we've been studying the book of Matthew for the last several months in this um, Restored series. And for those of you that are guests, um, our vision here at Gold Avenue Church is um, that we would see the gospel of Jesus Christ transform our lives, our neighborhood, and the world. And so um, you may remember, for those of you that are um, regular attenders or members of this church, that back in May, um, before I went on sabbatical, I preached um, my last sermon in May was um, from Matthew 4. And that was where Jesus had called his disciples. They were expert fishermen. And he said, I'm going to send you out to fish for people. And so he, um, he said, these are the, the scripture said, these are the methods that um, Jesus used for fishing. Um, teaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing. All right? So these were the methods. These were, like if you were a fisherman and you're using lures and bait. All right, well, this is the way Jesus taught the people, his disciples, to fish for people. And at that time, we said it was like fishing with fireworks because people flocked to Jesus like you were going to see a fireworks display. And over the summer, we've heard how Jesus um, has embodied and proclaimed and advanced the kingdom of God um, in many powerful ways. Um, you saw and studied Jesus healing. You saw Jesus um, exercising demons. He was restoring people's great faith again in God. He was restoring the value of the word of God um, and that over tradition. All right. He restored vision and purpose and relationships and childlike faith and marriages. We heard sermons on all these things. And so now for the next several months, we're going to look at what um, scripture calls the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be looking at how God restores our kingdom character. The Beatitudes, you know, blessed are. Um, the Beatitudes are found in the very first section of Jesus' sermon, and it's an invitation to come into the grace that God offers. All right? It's not a list of moralisms and have-tos. It's a list of um, ways that are invitation to come into God's grace. These describe how we'll live when Jesus is our Lord. And um, we have been learning these traits, and we're continuing to learn these traits. And I just want to say none of us, none of us yet live out these um, perfectly. In fact, they can't be lived out in our own power. It's interesting that it's meant to be a whole list that's taken as a whole, it's not like multiple choice and you can pick a couple of these um, blessings. The Lord wants you to have them all. All right? <laughs> He's generous. And so um, Jesus sits down to teach, and that was the posture of a teacher. I think that is a great posture, and I wonder today whether I could sit down and all of you would stand up while I teach. <laughs> could we... Maybe we could try that sometime, yeah? All right, but maybe not today. So 
We're looking at Matthew 5, verses 1 to 4. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. All right. I've got a little bit of a story, and um, it involves three children and a parent. Kids, are you listening? So um, this parent said, okay, you may play in the living room, but just don't touch the stained glass lamp that came from Grandma. All right, so the kids are playing in the, in the living room, but that beautiful lamp, and it's got these little um, things that you pull on, little metal strings, and if you pull on it once, it turns on one light bulb, and you pull on it again, and it turns on another light bulb, so there's two light bulbs, and then there, you pull on it again, and there's a third light bulb, and if you pull on it one more time, all three light bulbs come on at the same time. Well, they just couldn't help themselves, and so they touched it, and they started to pull the string, and then the other one wanted to pull the string, and then pretty soon they were kind of scuffling, and boom! Oh, no. Oh, no. The lamp broke. It went on the floor, and it broke to pieces. Well, Junior, the littlest one, ran to his room and hid because he was afraid he was going to be in terrible trouble. J.P., the middle one, stood by the table where the lamp had been, and he was just feeling really sad, and he was just waiting for his mom to come back in the room. The oldest sister, Cindy, um, she immediately ran to her room, and she got a piece of paper, and she started making a list of rules. And these were better rules than mom. Um, It said, don't look at a lamp. Don't touch a table where a lamp is. And if you have to walk by a lamp, hold your breath in case you might blow it over. And then she took some of the little stained glass pieces and started with her jewelry set trying to make something pretty out of what was broken for her mom because she was sure her mom would love the new rules and the pretty jewelry that she made. All right. Can any of you relate? Have you ever done something you weren't supposed to do? And maybe you went to hide or maybe you started to, um, you know, try to make up for it in some way. Well, our um, text talks about this trouble that we have in the world. As humans in a fallen world, everyone sins regularly. And I'm I'm sure you're thinking, well, how does our text really address this? I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute, but just let me assure you it does talk about this. And um, when we do something that God tells us not to do, or we don't do something that God tells us to do, that's a sin. That's breaking what God wants and has told us he wants us to live like. Just like the parent told the children what, how they could, they could have lots and lots of fun, just don't touch that lamp. All right. Like the children with the lamp, our lives and our neighborhood in the world 
are broken, just like that lamp, because of sin, because we disobey God. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher and revivalist, points out that the last word in the Old Testament is destruction or curse. Jesus knew that human hearts and human nature had been corrupted by original sin and that we all fall short of the glory of God. And the Old Testament is full of stories of God's children messing up, breaking the rules, breaking the lamp. Like Junior, Adam and Eve went into hiding when they sinned. And God said, where are you? Like Cindy, the Pharisees started writing lists of rules to follow, better rules they thought maybe than even God had given. And they were trying in their own strength to obey, but they were making everybody's life very hard while trying to earn God's favor. It was personal striving and self-sufficiency, and that's a result of pride. And this is the opposite of being poor in spirit. Both Junior, the littlest one, and Cindy, the oldest one, they were ways of trying to avoid admitting that they had done wrong by either going into hiding or trying to make up for it. Jesus wants to motivate his followers to act like JP in our story, the middle one that stood there by the table where the lamp was broken He wasn't hiding his disobedience. All three kids were guilty, but JP is going to be the one that receives grace more quickly because he admits the truth. All right? So how does Jesus teach in order to change the way people tend to live? Jesus starts in the Beatitudes by telling them how to attain true happiness. Now think about that. If you're um, interacting with a bunch of people that are all breaking rules, would the first thing come to your mind to be, let's talk about how to make them truly happy? You know, we probably would start with the, you know, like the guilt trip and like pointing out all the faults. Well, Jesus starts this very important sermon by telling them how to Um, attain true happiness. So, Charles Spurgeon, I mentioned this before, talked about how that the Old Testament ends with curse or destruction, while the very first words of this primary sermon from Jesus begins with, blessed are. Jesus pronounces blessings. It's his desire to bless and to restore, just like good parents want to bless and restore while teaching you how to live in a right way all right jesus points them toward the very foundation of living as a child of god which is receiving god's grace receiving god's grace so let's look a little bit more closely at some of the words in verse three blessed are the poor in spirit are you staying with me if you're not you're going to be standing up pretty soon Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that word blessed, this means to experience hope and joy independent of circumstances. Blessed is the deepest form of happiness found only in Jesus. And instead of using the word blessed, you could substitute, oh, 
the deep, deep joy. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So let's look at the words poor in spirit. There's two Greek words for poor. One is for the working poor, and the other is for the truly poor, the powerless, the needy, the one who is destitute of virtue. Poor in spirit means that our inner being, our spirit, our essence, the core of who we are, we're at fault with no spiritual resources to fix our own problem. So to be poor in spirit is to humbly acknowledge that you have no spiritual assets and spiritually you're bankrupt. You're a beggar. You have nothing to fix the problem, just like those children had nothing to fix the stained glass lamp. All right? Recognizing that you have nothing to fix is not like self-hatred. It's just acknowledging the truth. All right? It's a realization that's a result of the Holy Spirit's work, opening your eyes to your true condition. And it's our response to his work when we acknowledge humbly our low condition. So like JP standing by the table, we stand in the open and recognize that we have no excuse. We've disobeyed God. We've sinned. And to be poor in spirit is the opposite of spiritual pride and self-sufficiency. To be poor in spirit clashes with the world's ways of trying to either deny that we have problems or that we just try to fix it ourselves. Yeah? Now it says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He could have said, The kingdom of heaven is theirs. But he's really pointing out, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, You're all's. Your all's is the kingdom of heaven. This side of the room, your all's is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. It's yours. It's yours. It's his delight to offer the kingdom of heaven, the riches of heaven, citizenship in heaven to those who will acknowledge that they are bankrupt spiritually. He says it's yours. And then it... Interestingly, well, let me tell you this. The kingdom of heaven is the way that the Jewish people often refer to the kingdom of God because they had so much respect for the name of God and the person of God that they didn't want to use his name. So that's interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. All right? It's like if I didn't want to say Dane's name, I could say that guy that lives on Hall Street. Get it? Okay. Um, Maybe that didn't work. I don't know. All right. So theirs is, not will be, or maybe someday. Theirs is. It's a present tense verb. Jesus makes the kingdom and blessings currently available. The kingdom is yours now and forever. The kingdom, which is the rule and reign of God, is yours When we are truly poor in spirit, it's bestowed as a gift. It is not earned. This beatitude is listed first. 
in this whole listing of blessed are, and there's this whole list. It's listed first because this is primary. We need to set this foundation that our neediness is what invites God's blessing. And so we start with a humble, honest reckoning of our need, and we acknowledge our need of God. And then he comes and meets us. It was prophesied about in Isaiah 57:15, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite, which is humble, and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Maybe you have an example. Maybe you can think of someone that really embodies this trait. That um, I think so often, Chess, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think of Chess. And um, over the years, as he has led us in worship, so often we've just heard this, like, God, you are so good. I don't know why you saved me. But, you know, this admission, like, I couldn't save myself, and yet you wanted to save me. Well, recently, Dane and I were flipping through some YouTube videos on TV. We don't watch too much TV, but we were flipping through some YouTube videos, and we found this um, video, and... It just grabbed my attention, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. It was this man in his 30s. He dropped out of school when he was 17. He shares that he has mental health issues and that he had a problem with alcoholism for years, and he had tried to quit over and over and wasn't able to quit. He had gone to church off and on as a kid, but he thought church was political, and so as an adult, he never went. But he kept having this feeling that he said it was like I was a four-year-old kid and I had lost my parent at the amusement park. And I just kept thinking, I think my parent's trying to find me. It was that kind of feeling. And he said that he started thinking one night that he was, or day, he was having a heart attack. So he went to the hospital. And it wasn't a heart attack. They had tested it all out. It wasn't. And so he said he got in his truck, and he just prayed, and he asked God for help. And um, when he, he just said, I can't fix my alcoholism. I've made a mess of my life. And um, he asked God for help. And he said this warm sensation just came all over him. And he said, it was like, let's just be done with the first 30, and then he corrected it, 31 years of my life. He wanted his whole life to be forgiven. He desired forgiveness. And he said he started to have new thoughts. And he said, you know, I should make God's purposes the idol of my life. He said, we all have idols, alcohol, games, cars, achievements. And he said, "Um, I think I want to make God my master, and I'll be his servant. And I'll read this book. And when I read this book, which he was referring to, the Bible, Um, And he said, I'll look for what God wants me to do every day. This interview was um, by Joe Rogan. He's a nonpartisan podcaster, and it was with Oliver Anthony um, describing his summer experience. 
where this unknown singer cries out to the Lord, and then suddenly he writes a song that goes to the top of the charts. I'm not endorsing the song, although it's got a catchy tune. Um, But even in that, he says, Lord, it's a shame. And I wonder in his raw, candid language, he's naming injustices. And maybe it's a prayer. I don't know. I don't want to go that far. But I tell you this, it was raw and it was candid. And I thought, that's what we all need to be. It's just vulnerable and honest and like, I messed up. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. And there are parts of our lives, even as Christians, where we need to be honest about this struggle or this area of sin or this something that's just not what God intended. Even as Christians, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our brokenness And what happens? He sends his grace. And every benefit of the kingdom of heaven is ours. Now in verse 4, Jesus goes on and says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And um, a few weeks ago, I preached on receiving God's comfort. And so as I looked at this passage, I thought, oh, Well, maybe this is repetitive, and I don't need to cover this particular verse because we've covered that concept. But then when I started to study it a little bit more, I thought, no, this is saying something different about mourning. This talks about um, blessed are those that mourn right on the heels of blessed are those that are poor in spirit. And so Jesus, John Calvin in his commentary, says that Jesus is referencing true mourning over sin, which prepares us for true comfort in God alone. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, right? Second Corinthians 7.10 says that. So God allows this grief as a path, not a destination, but we grieve when we sin in order that God can bring comfort and help correct that aspect of our lives that's out of his kingdom order. So blessed are those who mourn. And this word mourn, um, it's the word that is the strongest word for mourn in in the Greek language. So it's intense, like mourning over the dead. And for all of you that heard Pastor Dave describe his mother's reaction when his father's body was taken by the funeral directors out of the house. She bent over, moaning and wailing. This is the word mourn. Blessed are those that mourn, that grieve deeply, for they will be comforted. Jesus and the Jewish culture was very communal. They will be comforted. And so when we together mourn over our own sin, our corporate sin, and the way it's impacting the world, when we mourn over what we see and hear in the news, we will be comforted. And the question I have for you is, is this your reaction when you listen to the news? 
Is this your reaction when you see brokenness in our community, our beautiful, beautiful city, our beautiful nation? Will we as a church, will we grieve and mourn so that we can receive God's comfort? Mary, you talked to us about prayer and laying the tracks. Will we bear God's heart? He made this beautiful creation, and every relationship was designed to be peace and love. Will we grieve? Will we mourn so that, and in order that, we would receive comfort? Or will we go into hiding or deny it? (laughs) Or will we try to fix it with all these ideologies and efforts? How will we approach the brokenness that breaks God's heart and it breaks our hearts? I spent time reflecting on the song lyrics of Amazing Grace this week. These lyrics so clearly point out the gospel, and it's so obvious that the person that wrote these lyrics was poor in spirit. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. We can't bring anything to the table. We're bankrupt. It isn't what is brought. It's in being bought by the Lord. We can't impress God with our efforts, our rules, our attempts to fix things. It isn't that we're such a great catch. It's that we are a wretch. With the kingdom of heaven, there is no entitlement. God owes not a thing, but Jesus came to the earth, his salvation to bring. Recognizing our condition as sinful and lost, in need of a savior to pay our great cost. We receive this pure gift with our heads bowed low. And he says, look up, child. I've got something to bestow. I love and forgive you and want you to know the kingdom is yours. And through your life, it will show. Be blessed, all who are poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.